Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Richard Lebed, who is Professor of Physics at Arizona State University. His research involves studying the properties of and interactions between particles at the most elementary level. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So our discussion today, um, you, you have a review article uh, entitled Heavy Quark QCD Exotica. Uh, and, uh, and then obviously you go through a lot of details of elementary particles here. In the abstract, you say this review presents an overview of the remarkable progress in the field of heavy quark exotic hadrons over the past 15 years. It's, uh, and so obviously we have gone, gone through a um, lot of discoveries, a um, lot of ideas in, in uh, particle physics. Uh, when I think about this, Richard, um, you know, it seems like we started with uh, earth, fire, and water as fundamental particles. Uh, that was a long time ago, and then we found atoms. Uh, atoms were their fundamental particles. And then came electrons, protons, and neutrons. Now physicists are saying uh, neutrons and protons are not it, right? There are stuff inside it. So it sounds a bit like the Russian doll trick. Um, are we, uh, are we close to uh, getting the last one? Well, the great thing is we'll never know for certain if we've gotten the last one. Now, that being said, uh, as far as we know, you know, and people do experiments to try to find out if there's a substructure inside of these quarks and gluons that are sitting inside of protons and neutrons. But as far as we know, there is no real hint for substructure within those yet. And protons uh, and protons, we can see, but the, the quarks, uh, the, the fundamental uh, particles inside protons and neutrons, we cannot see. So, um, could we uh, could we verify them experimentally? Oh, absolutely. And you know, there's no reason you should believe in them unless you have some way of checking. So, uh, let me give you an analogy to the way we think about uh, the fact that there is substructure inside of protons and neutrons. It would be like saying, okay. 
I have a box and that box is completely sealed. And no matter how hard I try, I can't, you know, I can't cut it into pieces to, to, to see what's inside, but I can shake it and I can hear that it's rattling. And that yeah. rattling gives me evidence that there's something inside of it. Now, of course, that's a gross oversimplification, but it gives you an idea of the fact that there are certain indirect things that you can do to prove that something has a substructure, even if you can't prove that substructure is there by, by actually breaking it into those pieces. Yeah, I can quite remember the scale of this, uh, Richard. So uh, approximately 10 to the power minus 10 centimeters for the atom uh, and 10 to the power minus 13 for the protons and neutrons. And then you have to go three orders down from there to get to the quarks, right? Something along those lines? It's, let's see, if you're doing centimeters, it's 10 to the minus eight centimeters for atoms. And, and you were correct, it's 10 to the minus 13 centimeters for uh, atomic nuclei, protons and neutrons. So, so the nuclei are about 100,000 times smaller than the atoms that contain them. So that's... So that's quite a big scale difference. And you would say, well, wait a second. I remember from, from you know, high school science when I was learning about the atomic model that uh, like charges repel and unlike charges attract. But a nucleus has a whole bunch of protons in it. And those protons are all positively charged. So what is holding them together into that tiny little space? You know, cer yeah. certainly not electricity and magnetism. That's working against you. And that gives you evidence that there is a much stronger force that's keeping them bound together inside the atomic nucleus. And that's what we call the strong nuclear force. Right. So so that's the crux of the... So, so could you define hadrons? Uh, everybody has heard of uh, the Large Hadron Collider where we collide protons uh, to, do, to find other particles. So, so what's the general definition of hadrons? A hadron is any elementary particle that, uh, you know, more specifically, any subatomic particle that feels the strong nuclear force that we were just talking about. So in particular, protons and neutrons are particular types of hadrons, as are things you've heard of called maybe pions and other mesons. So, yeah. so anything that would feel the strong nuclear force by definition is a hadron. So, so famous hadrons, so to speak, are neutrons and protons. Um, are there a substantial other hadrons that, substantial meaning, you know, does it, uh, uh, do we deal with them uh, uh, frequently? Any other hadrons? Well, the question is, what do you mean by frequently? Uh, so, so for example, one way at um, a sort of a superficial level of understanding what it is that's holding protons and neutrons together is that they are exchanging lighter hadrons called mesons, and in particular pions. And that's an idea that came from the early 1930s. And the interesting thing about the way that particle physics is done is that that was a very successful idea and it worked for decades until people were able to develop accelerators that could uh, go much, much deeper into the structure. And then they found that the protons and the neutrons and indeed these pions and other mesons themselves have a substructure, which is what quarks and gluons are all about. Okay. Yeah, and so, so the, the question that you posed at the beginning, uh, it's a puzzle. Um, 
you have multiple protons uh, in the nucleus except for hydrogen. Uh, multiple, neut- multiple protons, uh, they carry positive charge. And uh, we learned that they, uh, they repel each other. So how do they actually uh, remain in the nucleus at, at such short distances? Uh, and so that's a trick, right? That, that is what you're talking about. Right, right, right. And that's what I was referring to when I said that the earliest uh, successful, uh, at least partial picture of what was going on is the idea that the protons and the neutrons are exchanging these mesons. And those mesons are carrying the, the strong force attraction between them. Now, nowadays, we know that if you uh, go deeper into them, that's when you start to see, oh, and what's going on is that when you're exchanging a meson, you're exchanging pairs of quarks and, and you're exchanging gluons. And so, and so it gets more and more and more intricate as you go deeper and deeper into it. And so that's the, that's the essence of the kind of particle physics that I focus on is to understand aspects of strong interaction physics. Yeah. So, so could we get into the details of quarks then, Richard? So uh, there are a variety of quarks, right? Uh, and we have a reasonably good idea how the, the neutron and proton are constructed from quarks. Mm-hmm. Yes, we don't have a perfect idea. So that's an active area of research, but we do know an awful lot about it. So we talk about, we talk about protons and neutrons having a certain number of valence quarks. And that term valence is analogous to the way that people in chemistry talk about valence electrons. In that case, they're talking about a whole atom and they say, oh, okay, well, uh, we know that an atom has a whole bunch of electrons, but most of them are sitting in closed and chemically inert shells where they don't like to interact with other atoms, but it's only the top ones, only the, the, the least tightly bound ones that like to engage in forming molecular bonds. And uh, something analogous happens with protons and neutrons that, for example, a proton has two quarks that are called uptight quarks. That's a particular species of a quark and one down quark So those are the three valence quarks inside of a proton. But it turns out that if you look at the masses of those quarks, they only account for a few percent of the the mass of the whole proton. And what's going on there is that because the strong nuclear force is so very strong, what's going on is that these these quarks are kind of like flies in amber, that they're, they're... Uh, They're passing gluons back and forth, the force carriers of the strong force, and the gluons are interacting with other gluons. And and there is so so much force exchange going on that that the uh, energy associated with this binding creates a mass equivalent through E equals mc squared that that generates a, a very substantial mass, a much bigger mass than the mass of just these valence quarks. That, that is that is so interesting, Richard. So they, if I understand this correctly, that the size of the quark is at least three orders of magnitude smaller than the diameter of the uh, of the proton, right? The masses. We don't know about the actual size of a quark. As far as we know, it could, in principle, be a geometric point. You know, so we don't know of a physical size to it. But in terms of mass, it is. Yeah. Uh, it was. It's orders of magnitude smaller. 
or at least for the light ones that make up the valence quarks of protons and neutrons. Yeah, so the va valence uh, quarks, as you say, are two up quarks and one down quark for the, for the proton. So those are the things that we can, in experiments, uh, sort of, if, if we pry open a proton, those are the things that come out. Uh, but they they don't, as you say, account for a large part of the mass of the of the proton, only about a few percentage points. And so, so if I understand this correctly, uh, Richard, so most of the mass of the proton is sitting in the energy inside. The That's proton. exactly right. It's it's sitting it's sitting in the mass equivalent of the energy field of of this strong interaction glue. You know these gluon exchanges, and it gets even more interesting than that because. Uh, since since these gluons, these force carriers of strong interaction physics have such strong couplings, they can pop extra quark anti quark pairs out of the vacuum that only live for a very small amount of time and before they collapse down again. So so the actual content of a particle like a proton or a neutron, as far as we know, is these valence quarks that only account for a percent or a couple of percent of the mass of the whole thing, a lot of energy sitting in the glue, and in terms of these what are called virtual quark any quark pairs that are always popping in and out of the vacuum. The analogy I like to give my class is it's like you were to go to the pub and you get a pint of beer and you're looking at it and you say, okay, that, that beer has a head of foam on it, but if I look at the beer closely, I see that that foam is coming from bubbles that are coming up from the bottom. And any one individual bubble is gonna nucleate at the bottom, it's gonna rise up to the top and it's gonna pop a couple of minutes later. But for a, a decent amount of time, even though even those individual bubbles have very short lifetimes for a long amount of time, the content of bubbles within your beer is going to be a fairly steady amount. And that's the sort of thing that's going on with these virtual quark any quark pairs inside of a proton or a neutron. So is it analogous to, I know, uh, Richard, in, in space, uh, we have this uh, quantum uh, effects of quantum particles popping in and out uh, in, in, um, in, in complete vacuum. Uh, it's sort of a similar situation inside a proton. It's exactly the same thing. Uh, it just happens more frequently inside a proton or a neutron because there's so much energy available. You're no longer in, you know, the vacuum of empty space. You've got this ambient energy, and so and so it becomes much more frequent that this sort of thing is happening. But it's the same mechanism, and it all comes back to basically it comes back to the uncertainty principle of quantum mechanics that this is possible. <laughs> and so, so, so when a when a um, particle antiparticle a, a top quark and an anti top quark uh, pop out of uh, out of no, not necessarily a vacuum, but pop out of the proton environment, so to speak, um, there is no mass created, right? They they equally cancel. Uh, well, first of all, you said top quark; those are the heaviest of all the flavors. Uh, much more frequently it'd be up and anti-up. And yes, I know it's it's kind of confusing that we have a quark called an up and a quark called a top, but that's just the nomenclature that we're stuck with. The people who originally named them wanted to call the top truth instead, and that never caught on. 
But in any case, in any case, your question was, wait a second, how can you just create mass out of nothing? Uh, the point is that these virtual particles have the property that they do not have to satisfy the Einstein relation between energy and momentum and mass for a very short amount of time that is uh, consistent with the Pauli exclusion principle of quantum mechanics. So, so yes, if, if it were possible to actually grab one of those quarks and yank it out of there and say, aha, I've got it, and you just created mass out of nothing, well, the, the, the very nature of saying you have a virtual particle means, no, no, because of quantum mechanics, you can't just yank it out of there and it's going to, and it's going to stay there in your hand. So, so these are, so, so there's no uh, mystery with regard to, am I really conserving energy? Am I really conserving momentum? That's all taken care of. That's all taken care of. So the, the structure of the proton again, uh, two up quarks and one down quark. So they, they are in some sort of configuration inside the proton, right? So uh, can you separate them somehow? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure what you mean by separate, you know, because again, you can't yes. pull one out, but the way, the way that yeah. people actually proved the existence of these dynamical objects called quarks was basically uh, by a version of what's called Rutherford scattering, the way that people prove the existence of the nucleus, which was in the case of Rutherford scattering, they fired charged particles at atoms that, you know, were big fat alpha particles, you know, the same ones you would learn about in radioactivity. And they would just tear through the atomic electrons and they would, uh, they would hit the nucleus and bounce off of it. And so by finding out the, the pattern, the angular distribution of how they were bouncing off, people were able to figure out, oh, okay, so the atoms have this very dense charged nucleus. Well, in the case of proving the existence of substructure of individual nucleons like uh, protons and neutrons, they used a much higher energy beam and they found that if you if you get it up to an energy where you can probe inside of the protons or neutrons it doesn't look like just firing bullets at a glob of clay you actually get you actually get a pattern that's consistent with you having bounced off of these point like charged objects inside of that even though you can't actually pull the, the charge point-like object completely outside of it. So that's called deep inelastic scattering because, well, deep means that it used a lot of energy. Inelastic means if you hit a proton that hard, it's probably going to, to fly into pieces and, you know, not a substructure, it's going to create new pieces and that's called inelastic scattering. So, so this is how it was proved in the first place that there were such things as quarks. Um, so, so this was, when was this proved? That was done, that was done in the very late 1960s. So the, his, so the history was that there were these two Caltech physics professors, Murray Gelman, Richard Feynman, and Feynman, of course, is Feynman of what are called Feynman diagrams, which I'm sure everyone's seen at some point in their life. Murray Gelman was the guy who came up with the idea of the quark model. And Feynman was always very critical of this and said, how should I treat it if you're telling me that there's these sub 
structure pieces inside of protons and neutrons, but you can't actually pull one out of it. And so he came up with an idea that, well, if you, if you scatter, if you hit the protons or neutrons with beam particles, you might be able to prove the existence of substructure through looking at what the ejecta looks like. So he, he was the one who inspired these ideas. Uh, obviously, we don't have LHC then. Uh, in the 60s, did we have Fermi? Fermilab? Fermilab yeah. came online in, I believe, the late 80s. No, I was wondering. I mean, how did they, uh, could they, could they run an experiment uh, at that time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in the 60s, basically, basically the history is that um, after the end of World War II, the U.S. government was so grateful to nuclear scientists for the Manhattan Project that they poured energy into the, into them being able to do basic research. And that's when big science really took off in the sense of being able to develop uh, accelerator facilities and almost instantly as soon as these things turned on people started finding more and more and more and more new particles so so yeah there were there were experiments that were being done all over the US uh, up through the time of say these deep inelastic scattering experiments and as time went on as the experiments required greater amounts of energy in order to probe deeper to probe at higher, energy levels and at higher mass levels, they became more expensive and it became necessary for uh, individual universities that originally had their own machines to, to work together to form consortia to uh, develop bigger machines uh, so that they could do more involved experiments. Okay. Uh, and so, so going back to the protons again, so these quarks inside inside the proton, they are exchanging gluons, you said. So it's a bit like, um, is, would it be a correct term to call it uh, a gluon, some sort of plasma in which the, the quarks are sort of swimming? It's not unreasonable to call it that. There actually is a technical term called quark gluon plasma that is associated with where you have a soup of quarks and gluons, but they're not necessarily associated with any single hadron. There's, uh, so there are experiments that people do to create quark gluon plasma and study the properties of this sort of generalized, strongly interacting matter that has a greater extent than just the inside of a single hadron. But, but it, it's not unreasonable to say that I have some sort of, if you will, soup of quarks and gluons inside of a hadron. Yeah. And so the, the gluons, um, are, are they particles as well? Gluons. Okay, so here's, here's the story. Um, yeah. The way we understand uh, fundamental forces... Uh, especially when you're talking about how they work at the subatomic, is that they, they all seem to fall into a certain category called a particular type of quantum field theory, and specifically what's called a gauge theory. And the interaction is one of particles exchanging special particular particles called gauge particles. So in the case of electricity and magnetism, the associated quantum theory, quantum field theory, quantum gauge symmetry is called quantum electrodynamics. And the way we understand that is 
that everything you know about electricity and magnetism at its most fundamental level is, is associated with particles carrying electric charge that exchange force carriers, which we call photons. Now, most people have heard of photons. You say, well, photons are just particles of light. That's what, you know, is hitting your eye coming from the sun. Absolutely true. But it's also true that when you have two charged particles and they're attracting or repelling each other, what they are really doing is they are exchanging virtual photons between them. So now, so now in, uh, to directly go after your question, what about these gluons? Well, gluons are the analogous force carriers of the quantum field theory of strong nuclear interactions, which is given the name of quantum chromodynamics. So quantum chromodynamics uh, is the theory that says, okay, strong nuclear interactions come from particles that carry their own kind of charge, which is called color charge. That's a semi-whimsical name because it has nothing to do with literal colors of light, but any particles that carry color exchange force by exchanging the gauge particles, the force carriers of QCD, which are called gluons. So this business about not being able to break up an individual proton or neutron and look at the individual quarks has a name, it's called confinement. And the way that we define it is to say, any particle that carries an actual net color that isn't a compound that overall uh, is color neutral, you can't see that by itself. It is only, you can only see combinations of colored particles when their overall color charge is zero. And so that's the case for a proton or a neutron, but a quark carries color and the gluon carries color. Okay. So if I understand this correctly, Richard, so going back to the electrons, um, they they use photons as a way to essentially That's right. communicate uh, them. And, and the photons, uh, just like we have the particle wave duality uh, on the photon, it sort of behaves both as a particle and as a That's wave, true. right? And and so we have a, a sort of an analogous situation inside the inside the proton. So gluons are a bit like that. Is that's that absolutely true, and that's true for any of these particles I've been talking about. Every single particle in the universe has that that quantum particle wave duality to it. I mean, even you know, you could say that we as particles, we humans as particles, also have a a wave nature to us. But you can calculate what the associated quantum mechanical wavelength is, and it turns out to be absolutely tiny, something like 10 to the minus 30 something meters. So, so uh, the way I think about it is that quantum, quantum mechanics is not just some weird things that, uh, that only happen when you go to the subatomic level. It's that they become really pronounced when you're at the subatomic level. And once you start looking at things that are mesoscopic or macroscopic, it becomes much harder to find the, the residual effects of it. So, so just like the photons allows, uh, allow uh, electrons to communicate, the gluons carry sort of a color charge and they allow the quarks to 
to to communicate or or essentially to um, to stick right, together. Right, right, very close. Yeah. So the inside. quarks carry a color charge, and and they communicate yeah. with each other by passing gluons back and forth. Uh, okay, the gluons don't have color. Interesting, you should ask that. It's a weird feature that distinguishes electromagnetic interactions from strong interactions in that photons are electrically neutral, but they couple to any particle that carries electric charge. On the converse side, quarks carry color charge and gluons actually themselves also carry a color charge. So not only can gluons couple to quarks, which is what we've been talking about, gluons can actually couple to other gluons. And that seems to be one of the ingredients explaining why it is that it's, it's, it seems to be impossible to yank a quark or a gluon out of a proton or a neutron. So, so there are interesting similarities and interesting differences between quantum electrodynamics and quantum chromodynamics. And, and so that's the basis right. of the strong force. In terms of, you know, sort of the, the orders of magnitude, um, how much stronger is it compared to an electromagnetic if uh, the only thing you're looking at is you're saying I'm gonna I'm gonna compare two electron or an electron and a pro and an anti-electron an angstrom apart and and a quark and an anti-quark angstrom apart and just work out you know what the what the strength of the force is you'd find it's something on the order of a, a hundred or several hundred times stronger for the strong force than it is the electromagnetic force. Okay, and and it doesn't degrade uh, by distance, right? Oh, it the, very the definitely does. So think about it this way: since since oh. all strongly interacting particles should feel the strong force, like protons and neutrons, if it didn't degrade by distance, then you if you had two atoms side by side in a molecule, then the nucleus of one and the nucleus of the other would tend to either be strongly attracted to each other or strongly repelling each other, which would mean that chemistry wouldn't work because you wouldn't be able to form compounds. It's an, another interesting feature of the strong force that it's extremely strong, but once you get up to distances that are uh, a little bit bigger than the size of an atomic nucleus, they tend to fall off much faster than uh, electromagnetic forces. At least when you're talking about color, uh, uh, neutral color, zero objects like hadrons, like protons and neutrons. Right. Okay. So extremely strong in, in very short um, horizons, almost like the exact opposite of gravity. I suppose so. I suppose you could say that. Now, there's a difference, you know, and you know, I've yeah. seen that you've talked to people who've, you know, talked about things like gravity, a large scale and string theory. No one has ever been able to come up with uh, an appropriate quantum theory for gravity, which is its own kettle of fish. And that would be, you know, its own podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I haven't uh, haven't done that. So. Uh, so, so gluons and quarks inside the proton and neutron, and then you touched on this uh, inside the atomic nuclei. You have multiple protons sitting there. So, there's another 
phenomenon uh, going on in, in terms of uh, interactions between protons? You call it yes, mesons? yes. So, so, uh, so you asked earlier. Well, do I really have to worry about any hadrons in everyday life apart from protons and neutrons? And the, and the, the short answer was well. You know, if, if all you're talking about are stable particles that, you know, you encounter in a day-to-day -day basis, yes, those are the only ones you see directly, but a way of understanding how they are attracting each other is by means of the exchange of mesons, which again, at a deeper level, we now understand is actually that they are exchanging quarks and antiquarks. Hmm. Um. So, so that interaction um, is obviously quite different from the interaction inside the proton, right? Um, so, 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 how does that differ? Uh, I mean, obviously, different particles or different uh, different fields. Um, how does it differ in terms of you know uh, the strength of that interaction and 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 what? Well, here's here's an analogy to, to think about this. Uh, the analogy, again, would be, say, in atomic physics, in, in chemistry, in molecular physics, and you say, okay, well, I know that I know that there is this strong attraction, you know, now that we've talked about strong force, it's nowhere near as strong, but there's this, there's this electric interaction between an electron and the positive nucleus of any atom. Now, suppose I look at a molecule, that, uh, each of you know, and all of its atoms are individually neutral atoms, but it's still held together somehow. In that case, what it's doing is it's exchanging pairs of electrons, that sort of thing. And in chemistry, people talk about residual or van der Waals interactions between atoms. Well, the difference here is uh, the, the uh, analogous thing in, in terms of hadronic physics would be to say, okay, well, in an atomic nucleus, you have this big cluster of protons and neutrons, each one of which you could take out separately, each one of which is a color neutral object, but they still have these residual strong interactions between them, which is what's responsible for holding together the nucleus. And a convenient way of depicting that is by means of thinking about meson exchanges. Yeah. Yeah. Is the meson exchanges, is it, can it be considered sort of an extension of the phenomenon we talked about inside the proton? Between right, proton right. It's, and, a residual, uh, it's a residual interaction involving quarks and gluons because, of course, the mesons themselves are hadrons, so they have quarks and gluons inside of them. So, so it's, uh, it's a convenient uh, way to effectively describe an interaction. Okay, and so so this is why we, we call this whole field a quantum chromodynamics. So it, that's because exactly. we call Chroma all these colors, colors, right? Even though they, yeah, yeah. So QCD. Now the the review article um, is is a lot about uh, you, you call it heavy quark QCD ex, ex, exotica. So. Uh, we haven't talked about the other types of quarks uh, other than the up and down. So as we go up that scale, you have much, much. That's right. That's right. Quarks. And so, so you remember we were saying earlier that the, the up and the down quarks only account for something like a percent or so of the mass of a proton or a neutron. There are quarks that are 
many times heavier than that. So the next one up in mass is called a strange quark. And then after that, you have what's called a charm quark and then a bottom quark and then finally a top quark. And uh, unlike what we were talking about before, when you have a hadron that has, for example, a bottom quark or a charm quark in it, in those cases, those heavy quarks really do make up a much larger fraction of the total mass of the whole hadron that they live in. So, so what it basically is saying is that the typical scale of the kinds of energies that are associated with all of these multiple gluon exchanges inside of hadrons is somewhere in between the, 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 the mass scale of the lightest quarks and the mass scale of the heavier quarks. Um, so, so this should give us, um, so do we have an understanding of, so let me ask you differently, are there protons where you have, instead of the up and down, you have the, the, the top and strange and other type, other Yes, but we don't call them protons. Them? Every time you make an exchange of one quark flavor, that's the terminology for another, you produce a different kind of hadron. So... For example, if you were to take a proton and you were to take out um, and you were to take out uh, one of its down quarks or you know one of its up quarks and replace it with uh, a strange quark, you get a different kind of hadron called, say, a, a sigma baryon. Or if you replace it with a charm quark, you start creating things called lambda c baryons and so forth. And so each one of these permutations of the different combinations of quark flavors corresponds to a different particle with different attributes. There are relationships between them, but you have to go off and measure what is their mass, what, are, what is their coupling to other particles, what is its lifetime before it decays. And yes, you can hope to be able to predict some of those things based on your theories, but you have to go off and measure them as well. Right, right. Yeah, uh, we'll take a quick break. Okay. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about this. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back. Uh, Richard, uh, we were talking about uh, the fundamental particles, hadrons, uh, like neutrons and, and protons. Uh, we can peek inside them and we, we, we find even more fundamental particles. Uh, quarks um, inside uh, protons and neutrons, uh, they have something called gluons that they use to essentially communicate and stay together. Uh, the, the typical quarks, the up and down quarks um, that make up the proton uh, just account for a very small part of the, the, the proton's weight. Uh, and so most of the weight is, most of the mass, I should say, is sitting um, in the energy inside the proton. And we talked about why protons sort of stay together in atomic nuclei and they are exchanging mass bonds 
which are also hadrons uh, to accomplish that task. Uh, but uh, part of your uh, research interest is is thinking about other varieties of quarks um, inside these particles. They're not necessarily protons, but other types of proton-like particles. Uh, and um, maybe even configurations that we expect uh, in a proton from, from something different from that as well, right? So, uh, so before we get to the details, Richard, uh, what, is a, what is a heavy quark? A heavy quark just refers to a quark that it has a mass larger than the energy scale divided by speed of light squared, according to e equals mc squared, that uh, is typical for the energy of the glue fields inside of a hadron. So to be more specific about what we were talking about uh, in the first half, an up quark or a down quark has a mass of about two to five million electron volts divided by the speed of light squared, whereas the uh, typical gluon energy scale is something like a hundred million. So uh, a heavy quark would be a quark whose uh, mass uh, expressed in terms of energy equivalent would be larger than that hundred million electron volts. So that would specifically refer to say charm quarks where it's something like 1500 million electron volts per C squared or a bottom quark where it's something like 4,000 or 4,500 million electron volts per C squared. So, so when, so uh, you mentioned my review on heavy quark exotica, I was specifically talking about uh, hadrons that contain these charm quarks or these bottom quarks. Yeah. And like you mentioned in the first half, they, uh, so if we take the up quark or the down quark and replace them with, let's say, strange or a charm quark, they won't be protons anymore. They will be some other particle. Right. Um, and 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 we have uh, we have seen these particles in LHC. Oh yes, we've seen these particles since the nineteen fifties. Oh wow. So, so in, in, you know, some of even these smaller experiments that I was talking about were, which would be hosted at individual universities. Uh, and uh, it, really, you know, we knew about almost all of the fundamental particles before the LHC ever turned on. The yeah. only truly fundamental particle that's been discovered at the LHC is the Higgs boson. But there are tons and tons and tons of other interesting hadrons in particular that have been discovered at the LHC. In fact, I saw uh, an article by a friend of mine who works there and, and he's keeping track. He says there are now 59 new hadrons that have been discovered at the LHC. So it, it, it's quite a zoo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have so many different permutations. Exactly. That, right. So, so it looks like all those permutations exist, albeit um, in the grand scheme of things, very, um, very uh, small chance for those things to exist, right? How do you mean very small chance? Uh, I mean, these exotic varieties compared to the regular stuff. Okay, so, so now it's time to finally define what's meant by an exotic <laughs> hadron. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've talked for a while about protons and neutrons. 
And we've also talked about mesons. Now, protons and neutrons, we said, have three valence quarks in them. And uh, all hadrons that have a net number of three valence quarks are given the name of baryons, whereas all uh, hadrons ha that have a net number of zero quarks, because, for example, they have a quark and an antiquark, which gives you a net quark number of zero, those are called mesons. And from the time that from the time that it was appreciated that there were such things as quarks and antiquarks, when when Murray Gellman invented the quark model in 1964, along, uh, independently of a fellow by the name of George Swig, uh, it was found that every single hadron found for the next 50 years, all the ones before that, and then all the ones for almost a half century after that were in only two varieties. They were either these three valence quark baryons or there were these quark anti-quark mesons. And you look at that and you say, why are those the only compounds that you could make out of quarks and out of anti-quarks? And that was a huge mystery. I mean, you know, when I was a graduate student, I, I asked myself exactly the same question. And in fact, it's interesting, if you go back to the original papers of Gelman or Zweig, they say, so this is our idea. Oh, by the way, you could also make all sorts of other combinations, but no one seems to have found them yet. You could make four core combinations and five core combinations and so forth. <laughs> and it wasn't until 2003 that anyone had definitively seen something which doesn't fall into either the category of a three quark baryon or a quark anti-quark meson. Yeah. yeah, and so when you say you could make the four or five quark varieties. Right, and those uh, are the exotics. Those are the exotics, but you could still, uh, still in that combination uh, could get to a negative one charge, right? Uh, with even and odd combinations. Uh, electric charge? Yeah, yeah. So, could you make a proton with rather than three, uh, five quarks? Yeah. So, so a pentaquark would be made out of four quarks and one antiquark. So you think through that and say, hmm, if I try a, an antiquark is minus a quark, then that has a net number of three quarks. Oh, so it would be a baryon, but it'd be a weird five quark baryon. So what you are asking is, could there be a five quark proton? you know, with five actual valence quarks? And the answer is, well, yes and no. Uh, it depends on what, you know, what attributes do you require to say, I've got a proton. Uh, if you say, all I really care about is I have a baryon that has plus one charge, there's a whole bunch of ways that you could make baryons that have plus one charge that aren't just two up quarks and a down quark, but they would not be the same as the protons that are sitting inside of our atomic nuclei. They are their own kinds of particles. So just like we were talking about, oh, you can go through all these permutations of putting in different flavors, different species of quark and making different kinds of particles, the same thing would be true if you started adding in additional valence quarks inside of the hadrons. Those are different kinds of particles. They'll have different masses and different properties. Yeah. So, so, so what do we know, Richard? So if you, if you rewind time back, uh, very close to the Big Bang, 
um, we would have had sort of a soup of had uh, quarks and and uh, electrons or something like that, right? So, so what do we know? Why why was there a preference for this three quark? combinations compared to others? Well, that we don't even need to talk about the Big Bang for. That is something that we can we can use what we talked about in the first half of, of this talk when we were talking about color charge as being the fundamental charge that's holding these quarks and gluons together. Now, there's a reason it's called color, even though, it, as I said before, has nothing to do with literal colors. It has one very important mathematical property in common with colors, and that is, if you said, oh, I'm gonna take the three primary colors of, of light, red, green, and blue, how would I make a colorless combination of that? Well, there are two ways you could do it. If you had three primary colors, you could either take equal amounts of the three colors, red, green, and blue, and then that would give you white light, or if you had access to you know, all possible ways of making colored light, you could take, say, blue and its anti-color, which is yellow. If you take an equal amount of blue and yellow, you would also make white light. And yeah. so those are exact analogs to what we've got with, uh, with, with baryons and with mesons. A baryon has three quarks, each of which carries a color charge, which you could say, okay, well, one of the quarks is carrying a blue color, one of them's carrying a red color, one's carrying a green color. Together, colorless. Great. How about a meson? Okay, well, I've got a quark that's carrying a blue color and an anti-quark anti that's carrying its anti-color, which is yellow, and that also makes a colorless combination. Perfect. So then the only thing you have to do is say, wow, okay, so that works out really well. So why, why do we have to stop with two or three? Couldn't we do the same sneaky color wheel trick with four or five or six or seven? And the answer is, yes, absolutely you can. You know, it's just a matter of, can you actually make something like that in an experiment? And the odd thing about it is it took decades before people were sure that they actually had done that. Is it an energy problem? Uh, because ultimately there appears to be a preference for the the three quark combination right is is that sort of the lowest energy it seems to be the case and in fact you were you were talking before about heavy quarks versus light quarks it seems to be much easier to find the exotic particles once uh, one or more of your quarks inside of the hadron is heavy so it seems it's they they tend to stand out more when you, when you only rely on making things out of light quarks, there are so many ways of making excitations of them that when, when you try to catalog them, that you just have this dense forest of, of excited hadrons. You don't know which ones are exotic and which ones are ordinary. It becomes very tricky to sort them out. But once you get up to the heavier quarks where you think you know how to figure out which particles, which conventional particles should, should exist, then you can say, wait a second, I've got one too many uh, particles to fit the conventional scheme, or I've got an electric charge that doesn't fit the conventional scheme, or I've got you know, some other attribute that doesn't fit the conventional scheme. That's when you say, hmm, maybe I'm looking at an exotic hadron. 
Yeah, so I'm trying to get a very superficial understanding of this, Richard. So I understand intuitively that the, the mass of a proton, a kind of a typical proton with, uh, with uh, up and down uh, quarks in them uh, is largely coming from the energy inside right. it. Um, and when we go to this uh, more uh, exotic quarks like a strange charm top and uh, bottom, uh, there is less energy, there is more mass in the particle itself. So it almost sounds like a substitution. It's, it's not a substitution. Uh, it's saying that the amount of energy in the, the gluon field that's holding together is the same, whether you're talking about a light hadron or a heavy hadron. The difference is, the difference is in a light hadron, it's like having these little flies that are stuck in, a, in, in, this, in this honey or amber and that, that honey or amber is making up most of the bulk of the thing. Whereas if you have a heavy quark hadron, it's the same amount of honey or amber, but now you've got bowling balls stuck in it. And so it becomes easier to find out what are those bowling balls doing? So you see the difference. It's like, you know, with, with, the, with the original case where it's just a little fly stuck in the amber, it's very hard to figure out if you're looking at something where it's just the simplest possible combination or or they're doing some funky, you know, additional excitation that you can't quite figure out. Whereas if you've got these big bowling balls, then it, it tends to be much easier to figure out what their configuration is. Okay. So these exotic um, particles, then they, they will be much heavier than, than a typical particle. Oh, yes, definitely. And in fact, the first exotic particle that was definitively discovered back in 2003 is called the X3872. And that number 3872 refers to its mass, which happens to be about four times the mass of a proton or neutron. And do we have an estimate of uh, sort of the composition of the universe? Um, uh, you know, what percentage um, of the universe might be those types of particles? Well, these particles have short lifetimes. So that happens to be the case for almost all the particles that you could think of. So so when you were asking early on, you know, are, are, do we have to worry about hadrons other than protons and neutrons in everyday life? Those are the ones that are either stable or, or have very long lifetimes. You get to a point where you, you have lifetimes for some of these particles that can be on the order of, say, 10 to the minus 23 seconds, which is ridiculously small, but it is still possible to study these things. And you don't really understand how strong interactions work until you say, wait a second, this is, an, this is a prominent attribute of what's going on in strong interaction physics. So even though they have a very short lifetime, I better figure out what's going on here. Yeah. And so the, the exotic ones don't stay around. Uh, and so if they're produced in, in some phenomenon um, like a supernova or something like that, uh, if they're produced, they will die. Right, away, right. Uh, they will die away very quickly. And in fact, a supernova probably doesn't have enough ambient energy to produce particles like this. So uh, basically, so let's, you know, let's look at, say, something like the sun. The, the, the temperature at the center of the sun is 15 million degrees Kelvin. You think that's incredibly high. That must be a lot of energy. But it turns out to be not even enough energy to produce 
you know, some fairly light particles like, like muons that appear in cosmic rays and things like that. So, so um, these kinds of reactions that produce these kinds of particles are actually at higher energies than have existed anywhere in the universe except in the very, very, very early parts of the Big Bang. Yeah, but we can get those energy levels in there, let's see. We certainly can. In fact, you can get to much higher energy levels than the ones I'm talking about. So again, so let's let's talk about this, this 3872 I talked about, you know, so that was four times yeah. the, the mass of a proton or so. The Higgs boson is, let's see, it would be something around 140 times the mass of a proton or neutron. So it takes a lot more energy to make something like that. So the cool thing about it is that even though the Large Hadron Collider was put together in very big part to find the Higgs boson, the place where it has been the most successful in finding new particles is actually at a much lower energy scale. And the, and the Large Hadron Collider is only one of several facilities that are, that are finding these new exotic particles. There is also, there's also a very active program going on at a collider in Beijing. And then there's another one that is uh, going on at a collider that's outside of Tokyo. And then there are uh, American programs that are starting to study these, these particles as well in different energy ranges. So, so it's kind of cool in a way that, you know, everyone immediately says, okay, let's, let's go find Higgs bosons. Uh, but there's a lot of undiscovered physics happening at lower energy scales than that by a factor of 100. Yeah, I, I also saw, I don't know if this has been shelved or not, there was another plan near Geneva to create a, a bigger um, accelerator. Um, uh, uh, do you know if that is still uh, Well, still there's going? always plans to, to look at the next bigger accelerator <laughs> and it always depends upon funding levels. But if you're, you know, if you're taking this seriously, then you perform studies and, and, and you, you know, figure out what would be the parameters of this machine and what would you hope to find? And do you have, do you have no lose theorems that say, no matter what happens, I'm going to either prove or disprove something, you know? So these are decades long processes and similar ones are going on in other parts of the world as well. So um, the LHC by itself is going to be running off and on till at least 2030 and probably into the mid 2030s. So, so there's, there's no worries about, uh, you know, particle physics around the globe shutting down anytime soon. It's, it's just a matter of, uh, are we ready to invest in the next level up? Yeah, yeah. Um, 10, 10 to the power minus 23 seconds life, lifetime, you said, for this exotic particles. So we, so there, there's, there cannot be any sort of practical applications for them, right? Well, you never know. I mean, uh, so let me, let me give you a historical analog. Way back in the early 19th century, uh, there was a, a, a scientist slash engineer in Britain by the name of Michael Faraday, who was was talking to Queen Victoria and he was showing her some of these great new discoveries in electricity. And, and, um, and, you know, at one point he showed her what was the equivalent of what would become the electric motor. And, you know, 
they didn't know what was going to, to come to this. And Queen Victoria says, what, well, what, is, what use does this have? And, and he says to her, Madam, what use is a baby? We don't know what, we're, what people are going to be doing with this 50 or 100 years from now. You know, this is, we pursue this because we love the science. So we want to know what is going on. Uh, practical applications happen when you don't expect them. So, so, you know, you can't always judge what you're going to be studying based on, you know, what the immediate applications are going to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I picked up with, uh, your research paper, um, Richard. So this is about, um, you call it dynamical dichord yes. model. Um, so, so could you, uh, could you explain what that sure. is? Sure. So, so now that we're starting to get evidence that we have at least these four quark called tetraquark and five quark called pentaquark states, the question is how are the, the quarks arranged in them? What is the structure of these things? And you might think, well, the, the most obvious thing you could think of would be to say that they are like uh, little molecules of a pair of mesons or a meson and a baryon or something like that. And if, if it turns out that their mass is sufficiently close to the sum of the masses of those two particles, then you'd say, yeah, that makes sense. It could be a bound state of those. But there are others that just don't seem to match the attributes of being a molecule of, of, of mesons or baryons. And so, so you say, well, how would you end up with something in which all of these particles are strongly coupled together, but it isn't just an ordinary molecule? And one possibility is to look at how they were made and say, well, you know, there's a lot of energy when these things are created. Either you're, you're starting with a really heavy quark that's decaying to a somewhat heavy quark that's much lighter, or you're smashing them together in a collider, so there's a lot of ambient energy going on. And so you'd say, how would you create something that has a substructure that isn't just this ordinary molecule? Now, it turns out, it turns out that this color interaction of quarks is very interesting if you were talking about electric charges, you say, well, the rule of, of electric charges is very simple. If, if they have opposite charges, then they attract. And if they have like charges, you know, like positive, positive or negative, negative, they repel. But with color charges like you have on quarks, it turns out, it turns out that there are configurations where quarks can be of the same type. It can be two types of quark of differing colors and they still attract or you could have two anti-quarks of anti-colors where they attract. Those are called diquarks. And you'd say, well, maybe what's going on in some of these processes where you're getting weird structures is that you're actually creating, say, uh, two quarks and two anti-quarks, and the two quarks are attracting through this weird diquark attraction. The two anti-quarks are attracting through a diquark attraction. And because there's so much energy there, flying apart from each other. But these diquarks or anti-diquarks themselves carry a net color. And so by the confinement property we've been talking about, they can't fly off as free particles. They're going to get stuck. What they're going to do is they're going to eat up all the kinetic energy that uh, occurred in their production and turn it into and turn it into the potential energy of the glue field that holds them together. 
And, and in that way, you end up with an extended object, which nevertheless, all the parts of it are all still strongly bound together. And that's the essence of what's called this dynamical dichroic picture. And then once you have that, then you have to figure out, okay, well, how would I actually describe that mathematically? What kinds of interactions would be involved? How can I predict things? You turn that idea of a dynamical dichroic picture into a dynamical dichroic model. So that was my contribution to this field. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I, I don't know if I quite understand it, uh, Richard. So if I take something that has two quarks right. and two antiquarks, um, you could you could envision a colorless um, colorless state. But what you're saying is that you could also envision uh, two sort of states combined together and neither are really close. Right, right. So overall, it takes the whole system, all four or five quarks, in order for it to be colorless, but it has these two uh, pieces, these two quasi-particles, they're called, they're called diquarks, that are flying apart from each other. They carry a color charge themselves, so they can't fly off forever. But so they're stuck. So the dichroic is stuck, you know, in terms of having to stay in the same hadron to the anti-dichroic, but they can get some distance apart from each other before they get stuck. So you end up with an extended object, a dichroic at one and an anti-dichroic at the other. But all of the pieces, the two quarks and the two antiquarks, are all still feeling strong interactions amongst themselves. And so, so just counting the quarks is not sufficient information. There's almost sort of an evolution of that particular particle that you have to worry about. To well, that's that's the way I think about it. Forming it has to exist. You know, if if it if if such a thing exists, it would have to exist no matter how you produce it. But the easiest way of thinking about how you, uh, how you would produce such a thing is by means of the picture that I was describing so far. So, so if you were, so if on, on the contrary, you were to just take two quarks and two anti-quarks and stick them together, you know, with, with nothing else happening, you know, in a small space, they would overwhelmingly say, no, 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 I'm just going to form a, a, a two mesons and that's the end of the story. And I'm saying that if, if, you, if you produce them in a configuration where you can form a dichroic and anti-dichroic before that happens, then, then you have some probability of forming this much more exotic state. Right. Yeah, so uh, presumably, I mean, if this is, uh, this is doable, then you actually have a process by which you can create all oh, sorts yes, of things. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And, and, and this is a very interesting idea because it's a bound state that isn't a molecule. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing that only lasts as long as it takes for the quarks on one side sitting in the diquark and the anti-quarks on the other side in the anti-diquark to basically recognize, wait a second, I'm not a stable state. I have to decay. And so they have to recognize that, oh, the only way for me to decay is to form a meson out of the quark from one side, the anti-quark from the other. And so you see that's something that's very different from an ordinary molecule. Yeah. 
And so in conclusion, Richard, um, you're doing a lot of work in this area. It's, it seems really fascinating. Well, if you look forward five years, um, I don't know, I mean, like you said, a lot of plans uh, about uh, bigger accelerators and so on. Funding is definitely going to control that. Uh, what, what do you see in terms of uh, or sort of speculation next five years? Uh, how far can we go? Well, this field this doesn't field? depend on there being a bigger accelerator. This one, this one, yeah. uh, there's going to be, I can say without a doubt, there's going to be dozens and dozens and dozens more of these exotic states discovered. I, I was doing a count the other day. We're now up to 50 of these exotics, starting with the one that was discovered in, in 2003. And even last week, uh, one of the collaborations at the Large Hadron Collider put out a paper discovering four more of these things. So, you know, it, it, you, could, you could just do a count and say, well, how many permutations are there? And once you do just the permutations of the quarks, how many excitation levels are there? This is an extremely active uh, area in terms of experimental physics. And so... It's an exciting place to be because nobody has come up with uh, a perfect organizing scheme of what these exotics are. Uh, there's, an, there's an analogy, at least in part to this, which is I talked about the discovery of the quark model. Well, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, what was going on is that uh, these, these smaller accelerators were cranking out new particles all the time, and people just had no idea what they were all about, how they were all organized. It was only when the quark model was discovered that it all started to make sense. The interesting thing here is we don't even know if there is an equivalent of the quark model to this. It is entirely possible that the, the real solution to what all of these states are is that some of them might turn out to be ordinary molecules of two mesons or a meson and a baryon. Some of them might turn out to be these weird diquark states that I'm talking about. Some might be uh, some entirely different kind of mechanism for how they're put together. So, so this, is a, this is one of those rare times when experiment is just plain outpacing theory in particle physics. It hasn't been like this for decades. And so this is a very exciting time to be working in this area. Yeah, does it does it throw a wrench into the standard model that is you know sort of video? Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing about this is this is all as far as we know standard model physics. In a way, exotic hadrons are the most uh, slightly understood part of the entire standard model. I mean, you know, the, the, we know what all the basic particles are in the standard model, but here we're finding out there are weird new ways of putting together some of them, and that isn't entirely settled yet. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like um, we went from fundamental to more fundamental particles, and uh, we reached um, the, the quark uh, regime, and now I think your work and, and, and uh, similar things are basically saying we, we now have this foundational blocks and, uh, and we can build a lot of things with it, not just- the That's exactly that right. Somebody, somebody gave you a thousand piece Lego set and, and suddenly find that you can make a Sistine Chapel with it. <laughs> right, right. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, this has been great, uh, Richard. Oh, you're very welcome, Gillen. Thank you for inviting me.
Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.